Alex Harrow, we have been in love with you since 10,000 Doors of January, which came out, oh, two, three years ago at this point. Your new book is just out in paperback. It is The Once and Future Witches. And if you are a fan of Lee Bardugo, Naomi Novik, or Alice Hoffman, you need Alex's new book. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I've been a fan of Barnes and Noble since like walking. Like I was from rural Kentucky. So there's no indie bookstores, just barely a library. And I literally remember the opening of the Bowling Green Barnes and Noble as this like life-changing event. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you. This is so great to see you. Alex, can we set up the ones in future, which is for listeners? Okay, so this is the book that I sold on a three-word pitch, which I was very proud of myself for, which was Suffragettes But Witches, which sounded really snappy and cool and chill and fun, but which is like <laughs> 120,000 words more is what I needed to make a novel. Uh, so what it became was sort of an alternate version of the American women's suffrage movement, where instead of just restoring the right to vote and political power, they're also fighting for the right to perform magic and to bring witchcraft back to the world. So you have this set in Old Salem and New Salem and predominantly mm -hmm. in New Salem. Mm -hmm. So that'll give people an idea of where we're going. <laughs> but it is an alternate America. Yeah, fully. And that's one of the things that actually came through the drafting process. So first draft, I was going to do kind of more what I did with 10,000 Doors, which is sort of a strict adherence to the facts of history and to just sort of carefully weave in the magic on the edges of the real timeline. And it was really important to me to get down like, you know, even the publication of like the date to the serialization of the sequel to Call of the Wild. Like all these things I got so specifically right. And that was not working for the story at all. The first draft was really fraught and really difficult. And it took me a while to figure out that like the women's suffrage movement is one of these things that has covered multiple continents, several centuries, so many fraught different groups that like trying to force a novel's narrative structure into that mess of history was just not at all working. And so I had to like give myself permission to throw out the timeline, to acknowledge that the existence of witchcraft would dramatically rework history anyway, and to therefore like shove a lot of what I cared about and what I felt like were kind of the moving limbs of the women's movement into one city in one summer and force an arc there. And that felt a lot more organic and possible. And like, that's what fiction is for. Like, I remembered I was writing fiction at some point. And this is 1893. Yes. It feels like the Wild West. <laughs> it should. It should in some ways. And I think more of, not to be like, I used to be a history adjunct on you, but like more of like late 19th century American stuff should feel frontier-like. There are elements of frontierness to the formation of American cities, their immigrant cultures, they're still forming themselves. Industrialization is still getting its feet under it. Like I, I wanted it to feel new and full of wildness and possibility in that way. So let's talk about the title for a second. Once, <laughs> once in future are very particular words. <laughs> let's go there. They are. Uh, this book was like a huge pain to title. We went through like hundreds, you know, like me, an agent, an editor, just like sending back email rounds of like, I hate that one. Well, maybe something like this. And this one came to me because I did maybe too much, arguably thinking about how the centering of witchcraft would shift Western folklore, would sort of like twist everything sideways. Because there's always a witch, right? Like in so many of our dominant oral folklore and written literature, there's witch figures, but they exist on the margins, sort of like as part of their nature. But like if witchcraft were real, it would drag them to the center and pull every story to the side. So in thinking about that, 
you get to take some of the most iconic ones like Arthurian <laughs> mythology and imagine like, what if Avalon is not this like crazy thing that happens on the side? What if it's actually, in fact, the center? And that's the story that we talk about. And so instead of it, it's a once and future king who is promised to return again in this version of the world, it's witchcraft and it's three witches. It's the maiden mother and crone who are promised to return. And in this case, we have three sisters, mm-hmm. Beatrice, Agnes, and Juniper. <laughs> they are a terrific set of sisters. They are not so terrific with each other, but that's the fun of the story. I feel like Juniper showed up first. You know what's funny? She did in a lot of ways. She's a comfortable character for me to write because she is not super unlike myself at a certain age, my mom at a certain age. You know, like we have this real strain of of sort of, I was going to swear, but a certain type of woman who I love to write and who I'm familiar with both in real life and in fiction. But, you know, I think who actually like form most clearly is their grandmother, the Mama Mags figure, Mm -hmm. because I also have a line of like my mammy and my mama and my mama's mama. Like it's a line of specifically Eastern Kentucky kind of witchy wisdom. Like even when I told my mammy who still lives in Kentucky now, I was like, my next book's going to be about witches. And she immediately is like, you know, Mandy Bill, your great, great grandma, she was a witch. And I was like, I didn't know that actually, (laughs) but it makes sense. It's witchcraft as received lore, you know, as, as ancestral wisdom. And, And that is very familiar to me. And I think familiar to many probably white Southerners, like it is a thing. It's very much a thing. And so her voice came very clearly. And until I wrote the very first few pages are actually sort of in her voice or very much informed by her storytelling. And until I wrote that, I didn't really have the other characters in my mind. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. One of the things you pull into this story is folklore, but the way you build spells and the way these women cast spells, it's nursery rhymes, it's poems, it's women's wisdom. I mean, so one of the kind of key conceits here is that like, I mean, it's the first line of the book, so it's not really a spoiler, but there's no such thing as witches, but there used to be. So the idea here is that like the witch burnings worked and they were real. They weren't just like a a series of social upheavals that resulted in the deaths of innocent people, which is what they think they actually were. But like if the witch burnings were real, then it was about kind of burning out a generation of knowledge. And that's kind of one of the other key ideas of the book is that, that witchcraft is perhaps not a bloodline destiny thing so much. So it's this idea of lost knowledge. And then you have to think about the ways that cultures and peoples have preserved knowledge that people didn't want them to preserve, which is a very common human experience that is repeated throughout history. And so the way they tend to preserve knowledge is by putting it in places that people in power don't look. So women's stories, children's stories, rhymes, songs, fabric, everything to do with the production of labor, all those kinds of things. Those are the places you're going to put what is important to you and what you want to communicate to others who are like you and not to people in power. All of that means I get to take like childhood nursery rhymes that I love and turn them into spells. (laughs) It's a great idea. But you're also weaving in retellings of folklore. I particularly appreciated Sleeping Beauty. Where it's like, well, she ruled for a hundred years after she put everyone else to sleep. And then this knight shows up and he breaks the spell and the king hands everything over to him. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's like, if you take all of these, particularly the really popular sort of Disney-fied fairy tales that we know, like your Sleeping Beauties and Rapunzel's and all that stuff, there is always a witch and she's always the villain. And so if you reinterpret those stories, centering the witch's power and story, and you both want her to remain the villain in some senses, but 
to sort of like see her more as someone who is seeking power to back up. That's I think one of the things I kept coming back to with the idea of a witch is that like it is a fantasy, but it is a fantasy of power. And it is specifically a fantasy of power for someone who isn't supposed to have it. So like that is almost like implied in that word, witch. it carries all of this baggage for us. And so like the idea of getting to retell some of our stories that include witches as being about the possession of power by people who we are uncomfortable having power was so fun. And like, it turns out I'm kind of bad at classic fantasy world building. <laughs> like, it's really hard. I don't know how these people do it to build like fully secondary worlds. And like the best way for me to get to know a world is through its mythology, like the stories they tell about themselves. And so getting to reweave and these retold fairy tales was like cheating on world building for me and very fun. But also the Brothers Grimm or the Sisters Grimm here. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I just mean, if there were real witches, wouldn't women have snuck in a few more places in access to power? So like a lot of the translators and authors and tellers of fairy tales in this are all shifted slightly. So instead of like Andrew Lang, it's Andrea Lang because I could. And it was fun. Well, and the sisters too. I mean, Beatrice is a librarian. Juniper wants to be able to vote because she wants that power. She very explicitly says, I want power. And this will go back to their family story. And we're going to let readers discover the deep bones of their family story. But you've got the middle sister, Agnes, who really has a lot going on. And she is so shut off from her sisters and she does not know how to be part of a family. And she's honestly, as we meet her, really kind of selfish. She only can process what she needs in that immediate moment. And she's not particularly good at understanding that there are other people in her orbit. Now, she has her reasons, and I'm not making excuses for her. Readers will understand why Agnes is the way she is. But did you know how problematic these sisters were going to be for each other when you started writing this? Or did they sort of reveal themselves to you as the story went on? I'm mostly a writer who like overplans everything and I know exactly what everyone's going to do. But in this case, I will say that their relate the fraughtness of their relationship did end up surprising me. And looking back, I should have seen it because I was trying to do maybe too much, arguably, with these three characters. I wanted them to be three archetypes. I wanted them to be maiden mother crone because I think that's a really interesting set of ideas that I both love and hate in mythology and repeats itself in interesting ways. I wanted them to be representatives of the very different places that women find themselves within the women's movement. I wanted them to represent three different things that we typically hate about women characters. So you've got an ambitious woman, a smart woman, and a selfish woman. Those are three terrible things that we tend to punished pretty horribly. And then I wanted them to be actual siblings with actual sibling relationships and trying to like do all of those things. Of course, they're in conflict. Trying to force all those things into one family structure is hard and fraught. And like, it very much echoes what's happened in my own family. A lot of this pulls from my family history. And I think it echoes pretty effectively what happens in the women's movement, which is a mess. I'm not going to argue with you there. (laughs) But when you say... These sisters present themselves in a way that, sorry, I'm trying to think of the exact line that you use. You wanted to challenge the idea of maiden mother crone. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back there for a second. Yeah. So these these archetypes of maiden mother crone, it's one of those things that is particularly Western, I think, and Eurocentric, but does come up in other cultures and mythologies. And it's the idea that a woman's life and role in whatever narrative is determined by her reproductive state and abilities. And like, that's obviously misogynist and lame. Nobody likes that. But I find it 
strangely resonant and powerful anyway. Like, I think it is one of those things that is gender essentialist and boring and overused, but which still has to me a little bit of power. Like, and I feel myself moving through phases of life and finding kind of a source of comfort in the idea that it is a repetitive pattern. You know, like I am a young mother now, that is a different role and I'm interested in that, but I don't want to be confined by that. So trying to both fulfill and undermine an archetype simultaneously is a weird line to walk. I don't know if I pulled it off, but I did try. I think readers will get it. (laughs) I think readers will understand, but I just wanted to ask the question because I think it's fascinating because it is so much of the book. It's obvious that you're wrestling with a lot of really big ideas in this narrative. Now, it's incredibly entertaining. I love these. That's why it's more than 500 pages. It wasn't supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost twice the length of 10,000 Doors of January. But here's the thing. How do you keep it from becoming a polemic? Because obviously that's not what you want to write an entertaining thing because you've got to live with this book while you're writing it, while you're editing it, while you're putting it out in the world. So you don't need a textbook. How'd you do it? Um poorly the first time. So the first draft I turned in was, what was it like 50,000 words shorter? And it was, I think my edit letter from my wonderful editor described it as like a mattress stuffed in a pillowcase, which is sweet and charming. Um, (laughs) And the main thing that I had left out in that draft, like I had ideas and plots and mechanisms and I'd done all this thinking, like overthinking to some extent, but I hadn't let the characters breathe and experience and feel these things. And in particular, I don't think I had given them enough joy. Like I had focused maybe because I was writing this in a certain political era, I was feeling a lot more rage and darkness and difficulty. I had a newborn. I was just feeling very, very upset. And a lot of that was channeled into the book in the first draft. And the second draft was where I remembered that this is about sort of the creating of communities to survive these times and and the solidarity and the moments of joy and love and sex. Like these are actually good and valuable things that are important in social movements. Social movements are not born out of anger alone. And so like remembering that there's humans in the story was really what the second draft was. It's clear that Narnia has been <laughs> an on you. It's clear that Alice in Wonderland has. I learned a new phrase when I was preparing for this interview, portal fantasy. And I really want to talk to you about this because, of course, now that I've heard the phrase, I'm like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. But I might not be the only person who doesn't quite know what that phrase means. So let's talk about portal fantasy for a second. Yeah. So portal fantasy is one of those great terms because as soon as you explain it, everyone immediately can put like 20 books in that category. You know it. You totally already know what it is, but it's any story where a character moves from one world to another in general or from one more realistic space to a more imaginary space. So your Alice in Wonderlands, your Peter Pan's, Chronicles of Narnia is like the one, arguably Harry Potter. A whole bunch of things where there's a non-magical and a magical space and someone crosses that border. Also, 10,000 doors of January, not coincidentally. (laughs) But what else? What are the other books and who are the other authors who have influenced you? Oh, I'm a real messy reader. I'm not uh, strictly in one genre. And I keep kind of discovering new genres. Like this last year has been my year of discovering that romance novels are great now, actually. And I've been wildly missing out. And there's so much smart, interesting, emotional work being done in the romance genre. But as far as influences, I did grow up in a very nerdy household. My mom gave me kind of like all sci-fi and fantasy written by women in the 80s and before. Like I just, I inherited this huge sex. So I didn't really have to go through, I think a common arc with people in encountering fantasy is that they start with like sort of the great white male canon. I did not. I started with Le Guin 
and Butler and like just sort of like these huge looming figures of the genre. So my journey has been a little bit different in that sense. And I also, my mom was an English major. So I read all the 19th century children's lit that actually in some ways is the beginnings of fantasy as a genre. And not coincidentally is hugely shaped by imperialism. Let's not get off of imperialism yet. One, it was a subject of study. And you do see, again, this is one of the big themes that's running through 10,000 Doors of January, but also Once in Future Witches. Yeah. Empire is something that I think if you were going to write, I mean, I just don't think you can set anything in American history and probably most other histories, unless you're talking about empire, at least on the margins. I came to see it as the thing that shaped the power dynamics that we live with today, both in race, class, gender, and geography. And I think it also shaped our fantasy literature. Like, I think you can make a really strong argument that in some ways, a lot of the early books that were formative to the genre were about adventure as defined in a very colonial sense. So it's someone from the metropole, from the homeland, going into some sort of wilderness, which may or may not already have people in it. Or it could be like Narnia, which is in one sense, very much a story about four civilized British children who go to this magical world that desperately needs their help and conveniently only has animals as natives, like yikes. And they end up on the throne. They end up on the throne. And he wrote it during a moment when the British Empire is at its most fractious. It's coming apart as he's writing that. And I don't think that's coincidental. So anyway, I think we have a lot baked into the idea of portal fantasies, of adventure stories, and of fantasy itself that is really predicated on the relationships of empire. Gulliver's Travels. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And the travel narrative itself. The travel narrative itself, you could argue, is like the beginnings of novels, you know? (laughs) And that is something that is formed with a frontier in mind. I read a lot of Mary Louise Pratt's Imperial Eye. I always (laughs) think about that. It really shapes a lot of how I see our literature today. And so I think a lot of, I should say, that that I think is the roots of our genre. But I think fantasy today and sci-fi today is so much talking back to that and subverting that. Like the genre today is doing incredible things to kind of undermine itself. And I love it. I mean, isn't that the fun though for you to be able to speak to present day America, everything else, and you get to play. There is a huge sense of play in this book. And you have, I know you were saying you cheated world building by doing your research and and letting the frontier speak for you in some ways. But at the same time, you had to have sat down at some point and said, okay, I need to get from point A to point B. You had to have had a map in your head in some ways of just the physical space. Oh yeah. I drew lots of maps of New Salem, the city that I was existing in, which is one of the things I also had to fix in later drafts because I still have never lived in a city. (laughs) I don't know how it feels to move through a city, which was actually one of the, in a very early draft, the three sisters were from that same city and there was no journey into the city and it didn't work. I couldn't sell it. Like I didn't know what it felt like to be born and raised in an urban space. And so they had to be from a fictional version of Eastern Kentucky going to the city in order for me to like feel that space. There's also a terrific character called Cleopatra Quinn, who's a reporter and she is awesome. <laughs> Cleopatra Quinn could not be one of the point of view characters for reasons of who I am and what I'm limited by as a white woman. But I mean, she's there because she's amazing and she's fun. And she was really delightful to write and push the plot forward in all these really key ways. But the American women's suffrage movement is a fundamentally racist 
process and it, it still is in a lot of ways, but like women's rights were achieved by a series of alliances with other groups. That is just like how it happened. And so I wanted to like pay tribute to the work of the people who are left out, who are not being put on the dollar bills and on the coins, but who were actually doing that work. And in many ways, we're doing the deeds and not the words. And all of this, I realize we're talking about disparate points of this 500 plus page novel. Say that three times fast. <laughs> You've got the whole thing mapped out. You know what's informed you. You're clearly having a ball writing this book. <laughs> I know you say now it was there were moments where you're like this, but there's a lot of glee and a lot of whimsy. Yes, there are moments, you know, terrible things happen because life terrible things. Do you have a favorite moment from this book? Ooh. Oh, hold on. Give me a second. Do I have a favorite moment? I'm trying to think of one that's not like a huge spoiler. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I, I, that's why I'm asking you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say, I don't know if it's my favorite moment. In some ways, it deals with some difficult stuff. But so in 10,000 Doors, there's a scene where a child is born. It takes maybe a page. It's not a big deal. Everybody moves on. I had a child after writing that. <laughs> Two children. <laughs> And so when I came back to the point where a child was born in Once and Future, which is, it's like several chapters. It's a big deal. The plot is built around it. It's like a whole occurrence. And I actually did enjoy getting to kind of dramatize and just elevate that experience to being something important, like a serious event that everyone takes very seriously. And it's risking a couple of lives in a way that I, I feel like childbirth is mostly just like a screaming sweaty woman's face and then the child is born and that's the important thing and I and I had a really good time getting to pour all of my feelings into that. I think you almost answered my next question with that <laughs> answer but I'm going to ask it anyway because I might be wrong. What did you learn writing 10,000 Doors of January, your first novel that you used in the second book? I mean, I learned a lot. 10,000 Doors was the first book that I'd ever even tried to write, <laughs> certainly the first one I finished. And so the entire process was learning like in some ways the basics of structure and plot and pacing and all the different things you're trying to juggle. I did think that it would be easier the second time. So that's my bad. That's on me. <laughs> like I should have known. I should have listened to every novelist ever who says you never actually learn how to write books. You like learn to write the book you're working on. That's true. One of the things that I had to rewrite the most in 10,000 Doors was to remember that other characters exist and each one of them has their own arc that is happening simultaneously and to kind of break the selfishness of your own point of view character because this one had a lot of characters and when you're trying to write a story that is fundamentally about like a movement and a community it's very important that each person has their personhood and has their arc and has their own sort of motivations going in and so that I think it was more prepared for that messiness and that includes the bad guys too I mean the bad guys are fully developed they're not just ghouls walking in doing whatever they're going to do. You know, that's true, but I do it reluctantly. Like I just want it on the record that I think bad guys are bad because they're bad. And I think that's okay. We had, we seem to have had some sort of like cultural movement against the like cardboard cutout villain. And I get it. That's a little boring and repetitive, but it turns out so are villains in real life. They're boring. Their motivations are boring. They're often just selfishness and profit. It is not some deep wrenching childhood trauma that is motivating a lot of the evil that is done in the world. And sometimes I just feel like, you know what? Let me just have a cackling villain who's in it for the money because they are. <laughs> well, your guy has a lot going on. And I know. <laughs> I'm going to let readers meet your bad guy because I have to say he's clever. 
and a little relentless. And you kind of know when you meet him that no good is going to come of this. Like, no, no good is going to come of this. But ultimately, a lot of good comes out of his bad behavior. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's sort of a lesson that I feel like authoritarians keep relearning, right? Like that, in fact, that crushing power, like you taking power does not actually crush resistance in the way that they might assume it would. (laughs) What do you want readers to know about Once and Future Witches? I want them to know, and this is said with like absolute respect for Atwood and her work, but I want them to know that this is not The Handmaid's Tale. I love that book. I reread it often. I cannot actually watch the show, apparently. I'm not built that way. But it is, in a lot of ways, a bleak experiment of like what we're most afraid of as people who possess femme bodies. (laughs) And it's terrifying for a reason and it serves that purpose. But that is not what I was trying to do here. It's, I think it was trying to be kind of a vision of a better past and a better future, maybe. It's what I want, not what I'm afraid of. That's what I would say. That's very cool. I want to step away from your book for a second and talk about you as a person who now has experience writing a couple of novels. (laughs) What do you wish you knew before you started writing novels? I wish that I knew that the more you know, that actually the harder it gets in some ways, like your standards lift, your expectations for yourself go up, even like the reading experience changes. And that's been something that's a little difficult for me. And maybe one reason I'm running to romance so hard right now is that like you start to see the mechanics of books and how they were constructed and you're more interested in sort of the meat of them than you are in just a experiencing the story. And that shift has been a hard one as somebody who like, I rely on fiction to take care of this weird brain that I have, <laughs> you know, like it, it is soothing and calming for me. And, and so like the experience of making it a job, I think probably a lot of people who have transitioned their art into their income <laughs> can relate to this feeling of like, it adds a whole different layer of stress and thought that I didn't expect. Are you a big rereader? Oh, all the time. I reread. There's probably like I don't know, 10 to 20 books that I reread every single year. What's at the top of that list? Nicole Griffith's books, especially Ammonite. I got to read her new novella that's coming out. It's called Spear and it is a queer Arthurian retelling and it is everything... Oh my God, it's so good. I could flip out about that book right now. But anyway, um, Nicola Griffith, Lois McMaster Bujold, uh, some Le Guin, and then like all the ones that just hit me at very, very formative ages that are like Robin McKinley, some Tamora Pierce, some Diana Wynne-Jones, like just like those ones that were big in like the early 2000s that just were specifically tailored to be like, here's a girl with a sword. And I was like, yes. Like I reread those just for comfort. <laughs> What else do you get besides comfort, though? It's a good question. I've been asking myself that. And my husband, who does not ever read or reread, rewatch anything, is like, what are you doing? Like, what could you possibly be getting out of your 20th reread of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? And I'm like, I don't know, except that I never took a writing class or got an MFA or did a workshop or until recently had a writing group. And so like... This is how I taught myself to write. I didn't even write that much before I tried my first novel. Like, I I just think that I really don't have a system for plotting. I don't have very many 
methods to what I'm doing. And so just by reading books enough to sort of internalize their pacing and how they did it, I think that's truly how I learned to write. So is that the advice you'd give someone who's starting out? I think it depends. I really have gotten really sketch on writing advice because I see too much of it that works for some people and not for others. And I think it can quickly become kind of an exclusionary force of like, you have to write every day. You have to read this much. You have to do, if you're not doing these things, you'll never be a writer. And I think that's like very boring and stupid. So if you are a person who likes to reread books naturally and maybe doesn't have the finances or stability or time or place in life to like go get an MFA like me, it's hard to beat just reading fiction that you love. Let's go back to Once in Future for a second. Was there anything that surprised you while you were writing? Actually, yeah. I was fairly familiar with like the outlines of the women's suffrage movement from having a master's in history and teaching it in various ways. And I was pretty familiar with like the folklore of witches just from like existing in the world and reading a bunch of 90s books. But I was surprised that previous people, even like historical figures had already seen the connections between witches and suffrage and that suffragists in the 19th century were writing pamphlets about how witches were just really maligned women who had knowledge that men wanted to punish. You know, like they had already seen kind of the similarity in their figures and their social roles and made that connection before me, which was a weird moment of dissonance. If I can go on a little tangent, I was listening to the episode of this podcast where Lauren Groff was on. Genius artists were, you know, honored to walk among <laughs> the world the same time she does. Um, and she was talking about her new book, which is set in the 12th century, I think, and how it very much comments on today and how she decided she wanted a resonance between the past and the present. And she wanted to feel that artistically in the book. And I think that is true and amazing and admirable. But I also think that's baked into history. Like the past created the present that we now are dealing with. And so I'm still startled by when you start to do historical research, you will find all these tiny things that are incredibly specifically relevant to what is happening now. What are some of those examples that you found? Oh, I mean, like I was writing this during the Women's March of 2017, January 2017. And much of the research about suffrage and and their organizing was surrounding marches on Washington, right? Like the conversation surrounding the 1913 march and the 2017 one, depressingly similar, you know, and they had some of the very same problems and pitfalls and failures. And so it's kind of grim how much resonance there is there. What's next for you? I actually, in October, have a novella coming out from tour.com. And you know how you mentioned there's retold fairy tales in this and you like the Sleeping Beauty one? I did a Sleeping Beauty novella (laughs) called A Spindle Splintered, um, which is nothing like Once in Future, which is actually the first contemporary voice I tried, which was really, really fun and freeing in a lot of ways. Uh, And then after that, I am about to turn in my third novel, which is... Really, really good. It's contemporary also. And I'm calling it Kentucky Gothic Beauty and the Beast. And it's really, really fun. Okay. Lengthwise, does it fall more towards Once in Future or does it fall more towards 10,000 Doors? 10,000 Doors. It's, it's going to be it's going to be tighter. <laughs> whatever it needs to be. Whatever it yeah. needs to be. So the novella is this fall mm-hmm. and it's Sleeping Beauty. Why do we keep coming back to, you know, Greek and Roman mythology and fairy tales? It's not that they're cliches. I just want to be clear that we're we're not saying, oh, here we are again. But as a culture, we can't let go of this stuff. 
Well, I just think we're, I think that's like a human brain thing. And I am not a person who studies human brain, but I just think that every time I hear people being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we have another Spider-Man movie or something. And like, this is what we do. We take the same story and we retell it until it is just shreds in our hands. And I actually think that's fantastic. Maybe it's because I'm a person who rereads, but that's like very, very exciting to me. This idea that that we've created kind of a common language out of retold stories and that we can then use these pieces, you know, like princess, like curse, like witch, like in, you know, superhero terms, we can use like the coming of age story, the powers, the event, like all these things. We can use them as a shorthand to talk about actually really important ideas. And and that's one reason that I think that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is the perfect movie. I think it is the pinnacle of all retellings because it's a retelling that knows it's a retelling. It's like super self-aware and it pulls on that as something empowering rather than pretending it's telling it for the first time. It knows how many times we have seen Spider-Man get bit by the spider. It knows that we know all the lines. It never even says the quote with great power comes great responsibility, starts it and then stops it because it knows we can finish that. And I think that is not just funny, which it is, but I think kind of brilliant. And actually I pitched this novella when <laughs> Tor.com was like, you, you don't have to have any novellas. And I was like, I want a spider verse, a fairy tale. So this is Sleeping Beauty, but it's Sleeping Beauty in the multiverse. And it's all the retellings of Sleeping Beauty crashing together and trying to get out of their narrative. So it's like, it's fun and it's silly, but it is, I think, to a purpose. Alex Harrow, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The new novel is The Once and Future Witches. And when I say new novel, it's new in paperback. So go buy a copy now. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.